Let's go. Three hots and a cot. This is our new series. How many of you know what three hots and a cot means? Four people? Cool. Maybe we need to watch the video again. No, I'm just teasing. We're entering into a new series where we're looking at the prison epistles. These are the four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote from uh, his time in prison, imprisoned for the gospel and for doing what God had called them to do. Um, the prison epistles are so named because, as I said, they're written by Paul while he was incarcerated. Uh, Paul, over his ministry, was in prison between, scholars believe, between four to six years, probably somewhere about four and a half years that he actually spent in some form of incarceration against his will. Um, and these epistles that we're going to look at, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we're going to take selections out of these, out of these uh, books or these letters. It's thought that Paul wrote these ones during his first Roman imprisonment between A.D. 60 and 62 while he was uh, in house arrest in Rome. Now later when he'd go to prison in Rome, he would actually spend time in a, the Mamertine prison, which was kind of like a hole in the ground, and then he was executed uh, uh, for being a Christian and for sharing the faith. But as I thought about this series and was praying about it, one of the things that God really pressed upon my heart is that living in kind of a comfortable time, you know, as an American Christian in 2023 who gets put out really bad by just small hardships and difficulties, um, is that Paul was a prisoner for the gospel, a prisoner for, uh, for the Lord. And Paul allowed God to get something really good out of a bad situation. And that's encouraging to me. Sometimes it's hard for me to see not just the silver lining, but to see the spiritual purpose in what I'm going through, what I'm walking through. And uh, I don't know about you, but I could toughen up a little bit and say, God, if you can bring something amazing, these four incredible letters that encourage Christians for thousands of years and literally go into the scripture as God's, uh, as inspired scripture, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, if Paul can, you can get that out of Paul in a bad situation can you get something good out of me in my life when I suffer for you, when things don't go my way? What we see about Paul is that Paul did not let his circumstances stop his calling. Come on, he didn't let bad circumstance stop his destiny in God. He continued to move forward on mission even when things weren't going the way that he wanted. And that's a powerful truth for all of us to take heart of and say, God, I, I'm going to let you use my life to make a difference in the world around me and to be used by you regardless of what my external circumstances are. Now today we're going to jump into Ephesians, and this is called by some scholars the Queen of Epistles, and it's thought to be Paul's finest letter. Now, the, the, these uh, epistles, just a word that means letter, and the apostles wrote letters to churches in uh, the Roman world and, and the places they planted churches, and they come down to us uh, as God's word for, for not just those people then, but for us today. Now when we study this letter, uh, Ephesians, it was written to the church in a place called Ephesus. This was a place that the Apostle Paul actually spent quite a bit of time. He worked there as a tent maker and he ministered to this, uh, this group of Christians, raised up this church. His spiritual son, Timothy, actually becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And historically, we know this church grows to be between 30 to 60,000 members at one point. So this is a mega church in the ancient world. It's an incredibly powerful time. They were so dynamic as Christians here in Ephesus that they actually disrupted the worship of this goddess called Diana, Diana of the Ephesians. And you might remember that story where the, the merchants that made these uh, statues or these false kind of idol type things that were shaped like a meteor that they worshipped and believed it came from Diana of uh, uh, Diana or Artemis. Um, you're like, I didn't want to go to history lesson today. Well, well, we'll move on in a second. But they caused such a disruption that actually the silversmiths created a riot 
because the Christians were taking out this trade of these, these idols and it was disrupting their economy. And so the gospel made a serious impact in this place uh, in Ephesus. Now, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's basically giving two sections and the letter can be broken into two, roughly two halves. The first half of the letter of, to Ephesians deals with our relationship and talks about our relationship or our place in Christ Uh, what happens in our life when the gospel uh, takes hold of us. And then the second half of the letter of Ephesians is actually talking about and details out our relationship to one another in the church, in Christ's body. And so you'll see a progression in, in this letter where Paul, in the beginning, it's kind of weighted towards what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? And what does that look like to be part of God's family? And he kind of hammers in these themes again and again. And then as you get to the second half of the, of the book or the letter, he really begins to say, now based on what Christ has done in you, let's talk about what he's going to do through you and through the church that you're a part of, the body of Christ, to make a difference in the world. Now today, we're not going to have a not going to have time to go through the entire book of Ephesians. I know that you really wanted to be in church for three or four hours, but we don't have time for that today. And so what we're going to do instead is go through Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. And we're going to look at two things. Number one, we're going to look at our place in the family of God. Number two, we're going to look at God's plan for his family. What he was really up to and what he's been up to all along. Why did he save us? What is the purpose? Why did he send Jesus? So on and so forth. So jumping in, Ephesians chapter 1, it starts off with Paul's greeting. It says in verse 1, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ, Christ Jesus. Verse 2, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. As I read this, I realized that Paul, even in his greeting, where normally we would just read through this and kind of skip over, how many of you just like blitz through the first verse of books of the Bible sometimes? Right? It's kind of like Paul, the grace and peace, yeah. Well, actually, Paul is already establishing a right foundation of faith. Because even in his greeting, when he says, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace, the order of these words matters. Even in this greeting, Paul establishes right belief. The order of grace and peace matters because God's grace is the precursor to peace in our lives. We only have peace in our life because of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, we live in a culture that wants to have peace, but at the expense of grace. We, want, we live in a culture, we live in a time that says, no matter what you like, no matter what you want to do, as long as you're not potentially physically harming someone, although this is getting pretty, uh, pretty loose too, um, everything's good, everything's okay. You have your truth, I have my truth. We can just basically pick, get to decide against science and against natural order and creation, what gender I want to be today or tomorrow, or if I'm a chicken or a man, or whatever I want to decide. I'm going to get salty today, guys. Salty Sunday. All right. I get to decide, you know, what is right and wrong for me, so on and so forth. And I want to have peace. And you have to, you have to be okay with that. You have to, in fact, you don't even have to just be okay with it. You actually have to celebrate and cheer me on and applaud me for what I want. Now, this is not biblical. It's actually not even logical or reasonable. But let's talk about how it's not biblical. Paul says, look, to have peace in life, it comes under the grace of God, which means to receive the the help and receive the the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, God looks down at us and he says, you guys need some help. Did you know the word grace actually means help? God's grace means God needs to help you, which means you have to admit, I need some help. What I think and how I think and how I do things and my special preferences, 
don't get to change the rest of reality. Actually, I need him to change me. Jesus says the kingdom of God is not of eating and of drinking. It's not of consumption and enjoyment. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, the joy of the Holy Spirit comes out of a life of peace, and peace comes out of a life of righteousness, which means right relationship with God and others. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. I've been a Christian for about 34 years. I know that's tough to imagine as a man who's only 25 years old, but (laughs) in all of those 34 years of following Jesus, since I was a very young child up to this point, I've not had one perfect day. Every single day, I've needed the grace of God to walk in righteousness. Come on. And that righteousness is a work in progress. Hello. But peace comes out of God's grace. And so right away, Paul's getting, he woke up and chose violence. When he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, he's even establishing theology right away. He goes on in verse 3. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. My friends, here is a wonderful truth from Scripture. We don't praise God to receive blessing, we praise God because we're already blessed. And this blessing that Paul's talking about here goes far beyond material possessions. You hear a lot of Christians like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And what do they mean? I'm making some money right now. Come on. I'm too blessed to be stressed. I just won the lottery, you know, whatever it is. I just, I just did the scratch and sniff at the, at the gas station and won $19.14 in a free pack of bubble gum. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Well, God's blessing does extend to the material world and extends to material possessions, of course. But that's not actually the blessing or the fullness of the blessing that Paul's talking about here. The blessing here, called the spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, refers to the new status and identity in the family of God, the new status and identity that we have in Christ. Now, the best analogy I can give you is talking about our our families, our our children. My, My kids... Evelyn, Jack, and Penelope are blessed to be the, 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 the son and the daughters of Jake and Bethany Schmelzer. They're blessed to have this name on their life. And here's why. Because yes, they get static or short-term blessings. Like this week, we took our kids to chicken bones. How many of you know that's a blessing? It's a blessing when you're eating it. It's a curse the next day. You're like, was it a smart idea to put three pounds of deep fried chicken into my body? And we're like, Jesus, I play pray bless this to my body and he just from heaven he just puts his hand on his forehead no I love chicken bones I'm not repentant I'm just I'm just telling you what we did we brought a blessing or we we took our kids and we blessed them in a one-time event to buy them food but that's not the blessing of what it means to be part of a family the blessing is not just a static blessing it's a dynamic blessing It goes on and on and on. It's the blessing of their past. It's the blessing of their present. And it's the blessing of their future. Our children, because of the sheer audacity they have to be born into this family, by nothing they've chosen or done, are going to be blessed because of the good pleasure of their parents who love them and want what's best for them. That blessing will not always look exactly like the way they want it to look. Because sometimes they want the blessing of ice cream and they get the blessing of spinach. Sometimes they want the blessing of free will and they rather get the blessing of discipline, right? Sometimes they want the blessing of climbing to the top of the tree. Instead, they get the blessing of uh, a timeout or whatever that looks like. But that blessing is ongoing because they're our kids. 
My daughter Penny, it was her birthday this week, and Thursday was her birthday, and no kid ever got more out of one day of her birthday enjoying it. I mean, she woke up singing. She was, it's my birthday. She came into our room a few times before we had fully woken up and was looking in to make sure that we were aware. And so when I woke up and came outside, she's like, Dad, it's my birthday. I go, I know I was there. <laughs> um, <laughs> gave her a big hug. Yeah, we're excited. It's your birthday, Penny. Ooh, you know, let's sing princess songs, whatever. But, but at the end of the day, when all the festivities were over and all the chicken had been consumed, she was, you know, a little down, like, well, my birthday's over. And I said, no, it isn't. I said, you're a schmelzer. In the schmelzer family, birthdays are all week. Come on. Anybody else do birthday weeks? This blessing is the blessing of identity and family, and it continues on. It's not once, it's for life. And so we give praise to God, not just because he blessed us, in a moment, but because in the new status and identity we have in Christ, we are fully blessed and we live in a, in a place of blessing. Charles Spurgeon says this, we are not sitting here and groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our own salvation. He has blessed us and therefore we will bless him. We praise God because he has blessed us. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to your gracious God. Amen? We bless God. We praise God because of his blessing upon us. One of the things that I would hope you would leave here today as you understand your place in the family of God is that God's love for you is not moved by your worship. Today, as we begin to lift up our praises and sing about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we begin to lift up our praises. We did not elevate God's status in any way, shape, or form. He didn't get, become more godly when we worshiped him, right? We were recognizing what he already is, which is perfect and incredible and worthy of praise. Nor did God's love increase for you in any way because you showed up at church today or you decided to serve on the dream team or you decided to sing songs to God, or you decided to give money in the offering. You didn't move his love for you an inch. His love for you is already perfect and total and complete. We worship God. We praise him because of the blessing of grace and the status we now have in Christ. And when you understand that, it actually takes your worship and your giving and your service and your work for God to an entirely new level. Because you worship as a freeborn child of God. You serve as a freeborn child of God in the house. A freeborn child will work harder for the family business than the hired hand. Come on. And it changes everything when we understand I'm blessed. And so I praise out of that place of, of already being blessed. Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. What a beautiful truth that even before creation, or as another translation says, even before the very foundation of the world, God loved us and chose us. And here's what this tells us about the gospel. You see, we have kind of a version of the gospel that is not necessarily untrue, but it's incomplete. And this version of the gospel says, Jesus loves you, he died for you, and he saved you, so you get to go to heaven when you die. And we say, amen. And we've all heard the TV preachers give us that gospel, that message, that good news. And it's not untrue, but it's not complete. Because the real story of the gospel is even before you came along, even before you were just a glint in your daddy's eye, <laughs> Even before you came into the story, God was existing in eternity past as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there was no drama. He was in what Timothy Keller calls the, the dance of the Trinity, this perfect, self-sacrificing, mutual love, perfect unity, peace. God didn't have to create us, 
and we didn't make his life better. He wanted to extend and open up more love because out of his perfection, he wanted to bring more, more unity and more love. And so he created us. And he's the hero of the story. He's the center of the story. The incomplete gospel, the gospel of how to get, you know, get out of hell and get into heaven, that sort of, it's not that it's not true. Yeah, when you give your life to Jesus, you do get saved from hell and you do get to go to heaven and praise God for that. Amen? But what that does when we only believe in that gospel or we only understand or grasp that gospel is it makes us the center of the story. And we're good at this, aren't we, as Americans? We like to be the center of the story. You see, we're born to it. We're used to being the number one nation and our currency is the number one currency. And our, you know, what we decide to do, our military is the number one military. And we have the NBA. We were talking about this, like, oh, the NBA draft is on Thursday, you know? And Bethany's like, do other countries do this? Or is like, we're the only NBA. And I was like, yeah, I mean, there's other professional leagues, but like, we're the NBA. And one of my kids goes, what does that stand for? Natural born athlete? And I was like, that's it. <laughs> the league of natural born athletes. No, <laughs> national basketball. Some of you are like, yeah, it makes sense. How many of you are not in it, right? <laughs> I'm not even good enough to run, run, run up and down the court as the ref or be a water boy. But we were talking about the, the position of preeminence. You know, we have our top professional sports leagues. And as Americans, we're kind of used to being number one. Now, I love being an American, but the Bible actually was not written to the context of being number one. In fact, most of the scripture is written to people who weren't even like number five. Jesus was talking to poor people. He was talking to the disenfranchised, the disillusioned. He was kind of the outcast, like, and he was in Israel, and they were just like a podunk nation on the outside edge of the Roman Empire. And so a lot of these things we have to reframe. And so we, we like this gospel that makes us the center of attention, where we go, yeah, I, I am a sinner, and I do need grace, but now that Jesus saved me, I'm back in number one. And it's all about me. And actually, the gospel is a lot better and bigger and broader than this. Because the gospel says God is the center of the story. He's the center of the story. It's the, the gospel is a story that first and foremost is about God's great love and his gift of righteousness, not my sin and shortcomings. See, I'm glad not to be the center of the story. Because like I said, I've been a Christian for about 34 years and not one of those days did I live up to, to, the, to the perfection of Christ. So every single one of those days, my own sin and shortcomings were on display. And I'm so grateful to believe in a gospel that says God is bigger, greater, grander. His plan goes beyond me and I'm not the center of attention. Jesus is the center of attention. Come on. He's the king and I get to join what he's doing in history, what he's doing in my life, what he's doing in history. I get to add myself and be part of the kingdom of God by the grace of God. I'm not the hero of the story. And he says in this that God loved us and chose us before the foundation of the world. But why did he do this? To be holy and without fault in his eyes. You see, the gospel goes beyond getting you out of hell into heaven when you die, and it goes into getting heaven into you before you die. Jesus came and he preached this gospel. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near at hand. When he was healing people, he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. What's he talking about? Where God gets what God wants done is now showing up among you, and it's not just around you, it wants to get on the inside of you. That's why George MacDonald said this, the kingdom of heaven is not come even when God's will is our law. It is fully come when God's will is our will. What God wants to do in us is transform us from the inside out. Not just change the things around us, 
We'll pray prayers like this. Oh, God, fix the politics, fix the schools, fix, the, fix my neighborhood, fix my spouse, right? Fix my kids. They're obviously defective and broken, dysfunctional. And the, the answer that often comes is, I will, but the, the, the force that you want to grow has to start with seeds inside of you. God has to get a hold of our heart and remake us from the inside out. It's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, right? All these things. And he says, but, but I say, don't even be angry in your heart because the tree of murder comes from the seed of anger. The tree of adultery comes out of the seed of lust. The point all along was not that we would externally comply, but that rather we would have a new heart and on that heart would be written God's law and his kingdom would be manifest inside of us and out of us and out of God's people would come the expression of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? How many of you are still with me? Is this too much theology today? Should, we, should I give you a life principle or something? Get enough sleep. Okay, let's move on. Verse 5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. When we talk about understanding our place, we need to really see what God actually wants and what it means to be a Christian and to be saved. If you just listen to the language that we've, we've gone through in these few verses, that we're united with Christ. Scripture says that God loved us and chose us. It says that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. We need to understand that being a Christian is not just changing what you think or saying, I used to believe this other thing and now I believe this stuff about Jesus. That being a Christian is not the fact that you now go to church on Sunday at least 2.3 times a month or whatever your average is. That being, that was funnier than I got credit for, but maybe it's just funny to me. Um, it's not just uh, changing our belief, not just going to church. Being a Christian is not membership in a club, Right? Being a Christian is about being in the family of God, being added into the family. In the Greek language, the word adoption actually carries a greater weight than it does in the English language. This word adoption is to say, now you are just my child. You're, not, you're just my son or my daughter. Like, you don't say, oh, this is my adopted son or daughter. Not that there's anything wrong with saying that or being adopted, but this, they didn't have that language. This language is saying, you weren't my child, but now you are. And what's happening here is a complete change of identity and status where you are now part of God's family and God takes pleasure in this. This is what he wants to do. God is not looking for servants and slaves. He's looking for sons and daughters. Now guess what? Sons and daughters are going to serve in the house. They're going to slave over that hot stove. Come on, you're going to work in the kingdom of God, in the house of God, but it's for the inheritance and it's for the purposes of your father because it's coming out of your free will. Paul goes on, verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. This truth that struck me as a young man, somebody once said this to me, and I believe this, is that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin and my shortcomings. He sees the, the righteousness of Jesus. When he looks at me, he doesn't see Jake's failures. He sees Jesus' success. And because of my status as part of the family of God, that's now how God relates to me. And this is a biblical truth. 1 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You were sin, now you are the righteousness of God. Christ was the righteousness of God. He became sin, taking our place so that we can be the righteousness of God. What a beautiful exchange that takes place. Romans 8, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there's no condemnation, and we are the righteousness of God in Christ. New reality. You want to see new fruit come out of your life? There needs to be a new root of how you see yourself. I am not a sinner. I am a saint because I'm saved by the blood of Jesus and I'm in Christ. And when God looks at me, this is what he sees. Amen? You see, if you begin to speak and you begin to think about the new creation reality that you are, you actually will begin to bring your reality and even your behavior and your desires into conformity. This is a, this is a principle that oftentimes we want God to come and change us, but we have to begin to see what he already has changed so that we can walk into those things. The other day I saw a picture of this... Uh, I don't remember what they call them, but in France, they have these like circular tunnels. They're, they're, they're like ditches, basically, or, or pathways, and they're ancient pathways where people have walked and wagons have gone along, and they, they go back even before the Roman period. They go back into the Stone Age, and so many people have used these paths that they literally have worn down the earth, and they create these big circles, and in, in World War I and different times, they would use them, you know, to fight in like trench warfare, even beyond the ones they would build. And they're still there to this day. And someday I'd love to go to France and walk in these paths, especially with a croissant, right? But, and maybe a French guy behind me going, ha, 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 yeah, you know, whatever. I'm a weird person. That's what I want, okay? We all want what we want. But these, these pathways, I was thinking about this, this this morning. I didn't share this in first service. So this is a bonus for you guys. I was thinking about this, and I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of said, this is a picture of what happens when you walk the pathway of grace is that it wears it down to where now you, you are just in the pathway of what God wants you to do. It's not like something that you're going, I have to like, I have to like figure out how to walk this path that's so flat and I could easily fall left or right. It's so deep that you couldn't do otherwise because it's a new heart. It's been trod so well and so long and it's so established that now you just simply walk in that path. And what does that mean? It means that as a person will surrender themselves to Christ and say, not my will, but yours. Jesus, I want to look here. I want to look there. I want to go this way. I want to do that. But I'm not going to. I'm going to continue to walk with you. Eventually, it wears in these pathways of grace. And it's a new heart that's created where now there's not effort, but rather just habit. It's like a brand new creation. And this is what God wants to do in our lives. Now, this is a process of time. But this is what he's worked in us through Christ. Amen? Verse 7, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. This here, I won't have time to do it full justice, but we see two distinct results of salvation right here in these verses. The first distinct result is freedom and the second one is forgiveness. Here's the reality that as believers, we are called to walk in both of, these, uh, both of these things, both freedom and forgiveness. The reality is that our sin made us slaves to Satan and the, the forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of darkness that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, the rulers of this present age. It's like the demonic kingdom, the dark side. How about that? <laughs> and uh, we're slaves of sin. Um, but Christ's blood doesn't just forgive our sin. He actually makes us free. He pays the ransom price for us to be free so that hell has no claim on our soul anymore. Listen in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. That's a scary line right there. 
the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Just like you can wear those pathways of righteousness in your life, when a person begins to turn themselves over to the works of darkness unrepentantly, they actually enter into a place where they're literally doing the devil's work. I was watching a Twitter video the other day, Jim Caviezel, who was the guy that played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, and he's in a new movie. He's going to play a man named Tim Ballard. Tim Ballard is a guy that goes and rescues kids out of sex trafficking. And these, these men of God are, are revealing, and other people in the world are revealing, that the sex trafficking industry has actually surpassed the drug trade and illegal arms as the greatest financial you know, area of vice and crime and evil. And in, the, in this uh, Twitter video, Jim Caviezel is actually kind of crying and just, just saying, like, it's so evil and demonic. And he says, these people that take children and abuse them and so on and so forth are are like possessed by the devil. They're, they obey the devil. They're doing the devil's work. Make no mistake, we are in a battle. But it's not a battle between flesh and blood. Because though you see the people that are in this, there is a power at work in their hearts. That's what Paul's talking about. Unless we get lifted up in pride and think I'm better than them, what we should understand is all of us were slaves to Satan. All of us were under the, the thrall of hell. All of us were under his, his thumb. And it took Jesus Christ, the most incredible hero, to come and die on the cross and to do what it says in the book of Colossians, which is disarm the powers of hell. When he was nailed to the cross, let me read it to you because I'm going to say it, let's say it. Let the Bible say it better. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. When hell comes calling for you and says, look, you owe me, because you're my slave. You were a sinner. You've been, you've been doing bad stuff. You were obeying me. You're following after me. You need to let hell hear the sound of the Roman hammer that put that, the, the nails through Jesus' wrists. And there's still holes. Did you know that when Jesus is resurrected, he still has the scars that tell Satan that he doesn't own you anymore? that he still has holes in his ankles and a pierced side that tells hell every single day that Jesus reigns over them and that they have no claim on your soul. And he says in verse 15, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was not defeated. He was instead standing in the place of greatest victory. And while all of the demonic forces of hell thought they had just killed the Son of God, he showed up and said, gotcha. <laughs> because you thought, you thought that if you took out the Son of God, that you would end God's plan. You thought that if you took out mankind's hope for redemption, that it was over and now Satan would win. And as you were laughing, Jesus showed up and he took the keys of death and hell and he said, game over. Oh, come on, you guys. I haven't even eaten chicken bones since Thursday, so this is just good preaching, not chicken, in, in, not chicken inspired. Man, I'm excited about the fact that Jesus paid for our freedom and that you don't belong to darkness anymore. I'm excited about the fact that we get to, to hear the temptation of Satan and the whispers that come, hey, you need to do this, this is going to bring you joy, this is going to bring you fulfillment, and we get to say no. Listen to the sound of the nails going into the cross. You don't own me anymore. Come on, I'm free to walk in Jesus. I'm free to break off depression. I'm free to break off discouragement. I'm free to break off the, the burdens of my past. 
Oh, you were abused, you were, you were hurt, you were, you were brought low by your family past. You're free now to let that be broken off of you because darkness doesn't have a hold on your life anymore. But you're not just free, you're forgiven. See, this is a place that is incredible. You're a freeborn child of the king. And not only that, but God didn't just take you out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of you, and he forgives you. He forgives us. Forgiveness means receiving the reality that Jesus paid. He didn't wipe away your sin like it didn't exist. He paid the bill. There's a distinction here. See, many Christians believe that God can take sin and that he can just sort of go, let's just wrap it in a boat and we'll ignore it. He couldn't do that. What he instead did was he shed, he spent the blood of Jesus Christ to satisfy the payment. And so when God forgives us, it is not that he decides to turn his eye away from your sin. He looked your sin full in the face and paid the debt. And that's why he can say, I forgive you because it doesn't exist anymore. That bill is paid. And so forgiveness means receiving as an unworthy person God's forgiveness. But when you choose to participate in the economy of grace and God's forgiveness and his mercy, what Jesus tells us is that if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. If we participate in the economy of grace, we can't also participate in the economy of earth and holding people accountable for what they've done. Yes, we need to have wisdom. We need to have boundaries. I understand that. I'm not saying you let an abuser continue to abuse you. What I'm saying is, in your heart, you got to release and forgive and let go of the people that have hurt you because we are all victims and we've all victimized in some way, shape, or form. And so forgiveness is the reality, the new creation reality of a Christian. Verse 9 and 10, we're out of time. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. The world that we live in, we know intuitively, it's not right, it's not good, and it's not ordered as God would have it to be ordered. That's why when Jesus tells us, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we expressing? Our place, this planet, planet earth, and our reality, our realm of earth, is not reflecting what it would be if God were in control, if God were getting his way. Because in God's world, there wouldn't be people taking kids and putting them into these trafficking things. There wouldn't be abuse. There wouldn't be divorce. There wouldn't be cancer. There wouldn't be all the brokenness. Come on, somebody. You know it. I know it. I don't have to prove it to you. We know it because we were made for this world that is without pain and without suffering. It was made, we're made for that, that place. What we call heaven is the new creation order. And what Paul is saying here is all along God's plan was to bring all of it under Christ, both heaven and earth. The rebellion of Satan and the forces of darkness in the spiritual realm, defeated. And the rebellion of mankind, defeated, but not defeated and cast aside, defeated and brought in to be in God's family. And so God's purpose in all this, Ephesians chapter 2.10 says, to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. God is making, he made all new things and he's making all things new. And we get to be part of that, God's incredible plan. So what do we learn today? Number one, if Pastor Jake has chicken bones during the week, he'll preach better. No, that's not number one. Number one is this, understand our place. I pray that you would understand 
your place in Christ, in the family of God. You're chosen by God. You're loved. You're set free, forgiven. You have a new identity in the family of God. That is your place. But you don't just have a place. You also have to understand God's plan, your place in that plan. What is God's plan? To bring everything under Christ's authority, to make the world right again, and understand that we're not passive observers of this plan. We're active participants, that God's work in your life releases God's work through your life, which is why we say here at Joy Church, one of our slogans, you were made on purpose and for a purpose. God, what you've done in me, what you're doing in me, let it come through me, that I can be a conduit of your goodness and your glory, that I'd be a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that I'd have a little hula hoop of heaven everywhere I go. Come on. That where I walk, I carry kingdom influence and authority and grace. I lift people up out of despair and of discouragement. I walk and demons shriek because I'm carrying freedom with me. When I walk around into a room, when I come in, all the demons get nervous. You ever walk into a room as a Christian and you see the person in the corner go, start getting tweaky? Don't be afraid of that person. Walk up and pray. Show grace. Show God's love. Right? Because you got a hula hoop of heaven around you. That was a Matt Molt message. The hula hoop of heaven. You got to go back a few years to get that one. But we carry in earthen vessels and cracked earthen vessels and imperfection, we carry God's glory, his goodness, his grace. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And God is bringing everything under the authority of Christ. And he's working that through us starting now in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Pray that, God, today we would see our place as part of your family, sons and daughters. We are free in Jesus' name, and we are forgiven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we're part of your family. We are adopted, and we are your sons and your daughters. Not like a son, we are your sons. Not like a daughter, we are your daughters. Thank you for that new identity in Christ. Let it be the rallying cry of our hearts this week. I thank you that you saved us for the good things that you planned for us. And we get to be part of your plan, part of making all things new and ushering in your kingdom. God, bringing health and healing and hope and life into the world around us. Thank you for every wonderful person here today. I pray they'd leave encouraged, lifted up, knowing who they are, set uh, out on mission and purpose today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just bow your head and close your eyes real quick, if you're here and you say, Pastor Jake, I have been obeying the devil. I'm not serving Jesus. I have not given my life to Christ and my sin is ruling over me, but I want life. I want hope. I want salvation. I want Jesus to save me. Would you just lift your hand up? I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I just If you want to receive Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, just lift up your hand where I can see anybody in this place. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Come on. Anybody else here today? Pastor, I want to pray. I want to receive Jesus today. Anybody else? Awesome. Okay, we're going to pray this prayer together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I give you my life, all the good and the bad. Thank you for the cross where you paid for my sins and made me right with God. I put my hope and trust in you. And I receive you today as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.